Every morning, just before I leave the house, I remind myself that the voices of depression are not the voices I want to believe. I remind myself that I am known and loved by God. This is the Holding It Together podcast. I'm Jenny Gastro. This summer, we've been breaking silences. We're talking about subjects that we've typically avoided. We're releasing shame and fear and courageously facing conversations we've been putting off. If you haven't already, go back and listen to our episodes on singleness, failure, and wholeness. Today we're talking about mental illness. Jill Stemple lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and she says she gets to see the world of mental health from both sides as a mental health policy supervisor and as a person living with depression. To read more about Jill, go to the Holding It Together website on Fireside. We'll start with Jill. Today she's reading an article that she wrote for the Mennonite Magazine in July of 2016 titled, Learning to be Known and Loved, the movement from hiding mental illness to sharing it with the church. Most days I function in the world. I wake up, do some yoga, put on a business casual dress, go to work and work hard. You would never know that there is anything wrong. And some days nothing is wrong, but on too many days, it's all a very well rehearsed act because I live with severe and persistent mental illness. And on other days when I can't even manage to get out of bed, my biggest accomplishment is not giving in to my self-loathing inner monologues demands that I hurt myself. There is a certain privilege to my struggle. It isn't terribly visible and I have the ability to hide it most of the time. A choice that someone with a physical challenge often does not have. But in some ways this has also been an incredible curse for me. If I could hide my struggle, then I thought I should. If I could appear functional most days, then maybe my mental illness wasn't real at all. Maybe I just needed to try harder. If other people couldn't easily see it, It would be really wrong of me to talk about it and burden them with my unseen illness. And so I stayed pretty quiet about it, hiding it as much as possible for years. At times I had to say something. I was missing work or needed a ride to the hospital. I would lie. I had a cold, not crippling depression. Or I would minimize it as much as I could. I would show up the next day, put together, falsely cheerful, assuring everyone I was fine, totally fine, incredibly sorry for the inconvenience, all while feeling more and more and more alone. Being in the church did not always make that easier for me. Although there is still very real stigma in many faith communities, in some places it's gotten more okay to discuss things like depression or anxiety. But at least in my experience, it's the common colds of mental illness that get talked about. The unfortunately all too common struggles that so many people go through. I'm not trying to minimize or dismiss these experiences as insignificant in any way. Even a mild depression, quote unquote, or generalized anxiety can be truly difficult. But those experiences simply do not fully resonate with my own. We are beginning to talk about managing fairly common feelings of depression and anxiety. We aren't talking about psychiatric wards and hospitals. 
we aren't talking about the police taking you away in handcuffs to be involuntarily committed. We aren't talking about suicide attempts or self-injury. We aren't talking about electroconvulsive therapy. We aren't talking about struggles that last for years, even lifetimes. Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe and chronic major depression. And should they ever happen to be mentioned, we're talking about the other, the unfortunate homeless person or incarcerated individuals or people in group homes, certainly not the person sitting next to us in the service. And I very much mean we when I say this, as the somewhat cliche saying goes, when you point your finger at someone else, three fingers are pointing back at you. How could the people sitting next to me know when I wasn't saying anything, when I was in fact going to great lengths to hide? I wish I could tell you exactly what gave me the courage to speak. Who doesn't love a good straightforward how-to? But it was years in the making and not so easily constructed. I can tell you that there have always been people in my life who've given me incredible amounts of love and support. My devoted best friend, who has taken more calls over the past nine years than anyone could reasonably expect. My Mennonite therapist, who has patiently stood the test of many difficult times. My pastor, who's very graciously sat in an ER with me until three in the morning and let me not cry but sob on her shoulder, to name only a few. And I can tell you that being a part of a church whose ethos truly comes from the core value you are known and loved by God, eventually, and I do mean eventually because I was there for like three years before I talked, started replacing the hateful, self-loathing voices of depression. I know that after being rebaptized to join the Mennonite church that I love, I was quickly challenged to think hard about my self-destructive actions, particularly cutting myself. I couldn't reconcile my newly official claims to a peace church with intentional violence towards myself. Being a good millennial, who generally believes the answer to almost anything is on the internet, I of course Googled numerous combinations of Mennonite and pacifist and self-injury. But when the internet failed me, I somehow found the courage to talk to my pastor. Self-injury was so shameful to me, I fully expected it to be a painful, horrible conversation. Instead, I received what was, at the time, an inconceivably compassionate response. At the end of the day, though, I can only say that the spirit moved because my public coming out wasn't anything I thought possible. I have no earthly explanation for where the courage suddenly appeared from. I attended Mennonite churches for seven years without ever sharing at sharing time, and I really had no expectation of breaking that trend. I'd sat in services before with responses in my head, but drowned them out with anxiety and put downs. And then I'd gone home with regrets, feeling very unknown and unloved. But I don't think the words from the pulpit that morning could have possibly been more convicting for me to speak. As a part of her sermon about Thomas, asking to see Jesus's wounds, our pastor Susan shared, I give you the reminder that when you boldly, vulnerably speak and ask, you might be empowering more onlookers than you know. I give you the reminder that wounds sometimes bear great gifts and that no one can know the real you without your scars. I give you the instinct that scars are to be honored, not feared. 
Still, I sat, paralyzed with anxiety, until I felt it coming, that silence long enough that they might wrap up the sharing time with a prayer. But instead of an endless stream of put-downs, this time I was telling myself, you want to be known and loved. No one can know the real you without your scars. Do not go home with regrets this time. And also, less profoundly, just put up your hand already. And so I did, and words came out of my mouth that I still cannot quite believe I said in church. Something like, this was a challenging sermon for me because I've spent most of my life trying not to be known by my scars because my scars are literal physical scars from self-injury. And then I proceeded to have a complete and total vulnerability hangover, even though I received overwhelming affirmation from my church. Nearly every person at that service came to find me after, which was beautiful and generous and also terrifying. I really did not know how to respond. I may have hidden the bathroom for a while, but I'm learning and maybe as importantly I'm unlearning. My autopilot is set to convince everyone that I'm fine all the time at all costs. And it's incredibly easy for me to fall back into that. It's slowly being reset. Like most things, it will take time. Speaking up has been life-changing. It isn't quite the miracle I would have chosen for mental illness to go away forever. Mental illness is still a very real part of my life. I barely made it out of bed this morning against the amazing gravitational force of depression. But I'm not nearly as alone in it. I had the honor to be given a special symbol of love and support from the women of my church this spring, a beautiful heart-shaped rock that is passed along every year to someone in the midst of a struggle. Every morning, just before I leave the house, I hold the rock to my own heart and I remind myself that the voices of depression are not the voices I want to believe. I remind myself that I am known and loved by God, by the women of Community Mennonite Church of Lancaster, by Susan, by Chris, and maybe, just maybe, the next time someone Googles Mennonite and self-injury, they can also find that message. You, too, are known and loved by God. Earlier this spring, Jill met with me to talk more about her own journey. But we also discussed how faith communities really struggle in being present for people living with mental illness. Why is it difficult in the context of faith communities and church to talk about mental illness? I, I actually think it's pretty hard to talk about mental illness most places, and that's coming from someone who works in mental health policy. So I talk about mental illness pretty much every day, but I don't talk very easily about my own experience with mental illness and I do it pretty carefully because stigma is very real and I have experienced that firsthand. So yeah, I think it's something I'm just generally very cautious about. I'm pretty privileged for someone who has a mental illness. You know, I'm middle class and have health insurance and a job and education, but like all of that can be wiped out in a second when someone puts that label on me. You know, she's mentally ill and she doesn't know what she's talking about. 
that's just your illness talking, you know? So you can get delegitimized and very unpleasant things can happen to you then that you don't have a lot of say over. So I think for me, it's a very scary label to put on myself or mm. to have people put on me because you just don't know when that might be weaponized against you. And I think one of the things that leads to then is that, you know, a lot of us are just trying to keep ourselves safe and not put that out there. And then we can't necessarily see other people. So we think, you know, I'm the only one, I'm the only one I see, no one else is talking about this. And so it feels very isolating and like a rare thing when it's really not a rare thing. Depends on who you ask, but like 20 to 25% of people have a mental illness and 4% have a serious mental illness. So that's a lot of people in a standard church. Even if you look at a 200 person congregation, you could have 50 people there with mental illness easily. It's not exactly rare, but we just don't see it all the time. So what I hear you saying is it's something that you have to be wise about sharing because of the stigma, because of how it can be used against you. And at the same time, the very thing that protects you from that stigma or from that label isolates you. And so then kind of you're left feeling alone. I think it can kind of be a vicious cycle that you don't see it. And then that just allows the stigma to exist and go unchallenged and well and it seems like it makes it so much more important or significant that there are spaces where we can be vulnerable and we can share our scars because then it's in those spaces where then we are seen and loved in our wholeness yeah so it's been a few years since you wrote this essay I love your description. I feel like I was sitting there next to you on the pew. What it took to raise your hand that morning. Has it gotten easier to, to share authentically? I, I would say yes and no to that. <laughs> um, I really like the way you frame it in your, your introduction to the podcast about, you know, sometimes there's like a bright shining moment and sometimes we're more just holding it together. So, you know, around the time I wrote the article was like that bright shining moment. And it was a lot easier to share. You know, it was a conversation starter to be out there so publicly. And lots of people talked to me authentically. I felt like I could talk authentically. But there's also been a lot of time since where it's been not, it's not been as well. It's been more of a holding it together kind of space and still a struggle. I think the church does a lot better at responding to issues that are very short term and not as necessarily as well at kind of when people don't get better. I think we still have a lot of work to do on that end of things. And so that that's been a struggle with my church since then, just having people not tie their hope for me and their relationship with me to the idea that, you know, if we just get the right pill or see the right doctor, then I'm going to get better as we can be done talking about this. I wish that were true. Like I would love if there was that answer out there, but I have struggled with depression since I was 12 and I'm 32. So that's not a terribly realistic solution for me. It's probably not going to be better next month. That's just reality. So I need people to be okay with that. 
and that's, that's hard for people to learn. You know, I think we want to have hope for people and I think we should have hope for people. I don't, I don't want us to limit our hope to a cure because there isn't a cure for a lot of people. Yeah, that's significant. You name the difference between, well, I think about accompaniment. We accompany one another in our journeys together. And that can be for a time or it can be for a long time. But I think in that idea of accompaniment, it's walking beside and it's not rescuing. It's not fixing or finding the solution. It's we're walking together. I think about how we all struggle with finding safe spaces or trusting enough or having the confidence to be vulnerable, to trust others with our scars. And what for you has been most significant as you think back to a couple of years ago when you held up your hand? Vulnerability is something that we all struggle with. And so what compels you? What gives you the courage to continue to choose vulnerability? and to trust that others will surround you. You know, I've been pretty lucky in my community that I'm not the only one who has talked and shared pretty vulnerably about a lot of things. And so that makes it easier. You know, someone's got to go first, but once that ball is rolling, it just becomes sort of the new standard that this is a place where we talk about those things. And so it's not strange anymore and it doesn't have to be as scary anymore at least in that place. So that's a real gift once you get that going and make that space. Once someone does it first. And I don't, I'm not taking credit for doing it first. I don't think I'm the first person to ever do that, but um, yes. Yeah. yeah. You talked about how sometimes in our congregations and our faith communities, we're better at short-term response than we are at accompanying in the long-term. What can people do in their communities with people who they, they know and love who struggle with mental illness? I mean, I think having a real relationship with someone and not treating them like a special needs project is mm-hmm. super important because real relationships do go on and they're not just your like short-term learning experience. You know, they're, they're real and they last and you're with people in good times and bad times. And I think that's super important. I don't know that I can prescribe any one answer that would be like, this is how to be helpful to a person with mental illness, because I don't think I represent every person with mental illness. I mean, it's previously mentioned I'm white and middle-class and have health insurance. And that looks very different than someone who is working minimum wage and might lose their job and become homeless if they're sick because they don't have sick leave. And it's different than a person of color who, when the police come in their crisis, might end up in jail more often, whereas I've ended up in a hospital. I don't think there's one solution. And I think really, like it always needs to lead with listening to that person and what they need and what they're asking for and what's helpful to them in their situation, those people are going to know what's helpful to them and they'll, they'll tell you if you listen. So making room for that in your church 
valuing that voice of lived experience and really making sure it's heard at the leadership level and in your planning of your programs and yeah, listening. I think there is a lot of room for the church to do kind of education things, to get more training on mental health. I've been curious about the heart-shaped rock. I think it's such a beautiful tradition that your faith community shares, reminding you that you're not alone. So how did that rock reinforce that to you for the year you had it? I'm a pretty tangible person. I like to touch things and do things with my hands. So having the rock was really, it was a real gift to me because then I could physically hold it in my hand and it's kind of heavy. I mean, it's a rock, so it's got some weight to it. I could feel that physically present and I live about 45 minutes away from the nearest Mennonite church. So, you know, my community is not super accessible to me and I live alone. I spend a lot of time alone. It was a really beautiful, tangible presence. I'm glad to participate in the acts of giving it back, even though I was somewhat sad to have it leave my house. But one of the things I did was I actually use uh, prayer beads as a spiritual practice pretty faithfully. And I made a set of prayer beads uh, actually in the colors of the heart rock. And uh, so that is my continuing physical reminder sort of of my, my church and people who love me and support me. One of my all-time favorite spoken word artists is poet Andrea Gibson. They wrote a poem that I've often listened to, and I want to read a snippet for you. This poem reminds me that I'm not alone, in the same way that the rock and the prayer beads remind Jill. Of course, since it's me reading, you won't get the full effect. So after you get done listening here, Google the nutritionist. It'll take your breath away. Here we go. What I know about living is the pain is never just ours. Every time I hurt, I know the wound is an echo. So I keep listening to the moment the grief becomes a window. When I can see what I couldn't see before, through the glass of my most battered dream, I watched a dandelion lose its mind in the wind, and when it did, it scattered a thousand seeds. So the next time I tell you how easily I come out of my skin, don't try to put me back in. Just say, here we are together at the window, aching for it to all get better. But knowing as bad as it hurts, our hearts may have only just skinned their knees. Knowing there is a chance the worst day might still be coming. Let me say right now for the record, I'm still going to be here. Asking this world to dance even if it keeps stepping on my holy feet. Thank you, Jill, for trusting us with your story, for challenging us to listen closer, to open our eyes, and to create safer spaces together where we can learn to depend on each other and to be seen and to be loved, scars and all. What do you wish people were talking more about? What conversations have you been yearning to have? This is your last chance. 
Send me a voice memo at jenniferc at mennoniteusa.org and tell me about your subject. Maybe you'll be featured on our Breaking Silences Talkback episode. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Castro, with editing help from Shay Langley. Our theme music was written and recorded by the very talented Addie Lichty. To find more music by Addie, look for Addie and the Subtracts on Facebook or Addie Lichty on YouTube. Holding It Together is a joint production of Mennonite Church USA's Office of Women in Leadership and the Mennonite Inc. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Fireside, or wherever you prefer. I'm your host, Jenny Castro. Thanks for listening, y'all. Talk soon.